Well, welcome to uh, Plum Creek Chapel. So good to be back uh, with you. Boy, it's been an incredible week. It seems like months since I've been here. It's only been a couple weeks, but man, it was, it's been tough. I really appreciate your prayers. I feel better this morning than I felt uh, since the surgery. It's like the Lord's really answering prayers. I was able to sleep through the night in my bed where I've been sleeping in a chair, so that was great. But uh, I was telling somebody I feel so good, I probably preached for three hours this morning. So keep, keep, <laughs> keep that in mind as you make your decision between Bible study and church as to whether or not to stay. Uh, no, I, don't, I would not do that. But uh, boy, it's great to be with you. I know we've got some guests with us here, and I always uh, love meeting new people. And I know we had some guests last week, and I, of course, missed greeting them. But uh, those of you joining by live stream, welcome uh, as well. Let's uh, make a couple of announcements. A lot going on this week, uh, and so I want to mention uh, the two videos from the Tulsa Conference. As most of you probably know by now, I was not able to travel as scheduled for the annual Mid-America Prophecy Conference, but they allowed me to do them by video stream. And so the first of those was Whose Fingerprints Are on the Founding of America, and then the second, which was Saturday morning, was Russia, Ukraine, and the New World Order. So those videos are posted at notbyworks.org if you want to check those out. Uh, also, I uh, had the privilege this weekend of uh, being on Olive Tree Ministries uh, with Jan Markell, Understanding the Times Radio. This was actually recorded a week or two ago, uh, but it aired this weekend. And so uh, if you want to check that out, both the podcast, all of these are available by podcast audio only. Uh, at notbyworks.org or wherever you listen to podcasts, just search for Not By Works Ministries. But they also put together a video version of it at Olive Tree Ministries, and that's available uh, as well. So we are continuing. Oh, and then the book, uh, which uh, we've been talking a lot about. We've got more of them out in the lobby. If you have not gotten one, please feel free to pick one up. Uh, it's our gift to you. Um, and then if you're watching online, you can go to spiritoftheantichrist.org where you can read the entire preface and also see the table of contents. So as we continue our look here at What Lies Ahead, remember this book is also out there, uh, What Lies Ahead, a Biblical Overview of the End Times. You can pick one of those up as well. It's 350 pages. Uh, but we're at the point now where we're talking, continuing our discussion of characteristics of the millennium. And I mentioned in an email this week that I, I, I've never been more ready <laughs> for the millennium than this past week. It just seems like one crisis after another, not only my health, but just lots of stuff going on. The devil is definitely on the attack. Uh, he does not like it. You know, I think it, it, it um, really ramped up last weekend when I was in Fort Collins. It was driving home from Fort Collins where uh, that, I, that the appendix uh, happened. And, uh, but that conference was on angels, demons, and you. And I only spoke once, but all the other speakers combined with my message, we, we really uh, gave the devil his what for, and I don't think he appreciated it. And I just feel like it was a spiritual battle. I really do. And so uh, not through it yet, but, uh, you know, we've been covered in prayer uh, through the Plum Creek Chapel community and the Not By Works community, and uh, uh, we're going to continue to proclaim the truth. And so, uh, uh, you know, we... we uh, but I don't want to say bring it on, but I want to say, the, you know, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. Uh, so, uh, so we're going to continue this talk uh, this morning and look at some more characteristics of the millennium and get into some of the spiritual characteristics that will, uh, that will be, you know, global and universal in scope during that wonderful time after the Lord's return in the future. 
but before we start, <clears throat> and I was going to do this last week, but of course I didn't make it, so it's a little bit of a delayed response just because of the timing. But I want to address a headline that everyone's talking about right now, and that's the SCOTUS leak, the Supreme Court uh, leak about the supposed draft of their ruling uh, on Roe v. Wade or that affects Roe v. Wade. Uh, and so I just put together some thoughts that I think we need to be aware of about that, and I thought I would go ahead and include those here at the start of our Bible study hour. Uh, main thing to remember is it's never about what it's about. Um, so uh, first of all, even if the ruling goes as the draft indicated it might, and that's by no means certain, but it seems like it anyway, then we need to understand it's not going to do away with abortion nationwide. It's only going to mean that each state can then make its own laws, and that's going to create sanctuary states for murdering unborn children. And, uh, and, and, and they are children, by the way, which even Joe Biden said recently, referring to them as children. But uh, So we're going to see basically abortion tourism. And already major companies are saying that they will uh, pay for their employees to travel and hotel to another state to get an abortion. So it's now part of the benefits that you can that you can get. Uh, so just remember that uh, though we want to do anything we can to obviously stem the tide of uh, abortion, uh, this is by no means a panacea even if it were to come about. But second, we need to understand this is going to create division in an already very divided nation. It's going to solidify the divide between conservative states and liberal states because uh, of this issue. And this is going to play right into the eventual civil war that the Luciferians have been fomenting uh, for years to bring down uh, America. Third, <clears throat> I find it strange that the same conservative justice who, justices who have supported extremely liberal issues in the past, like the decision to not to hear evidence in the greatest election fraud in U.S. history, like LGBTQ issues, like gay marriage and many others, are now being hailed as heroes. But let's not forget, the Supreme Court is controlled, okay? Uh, it has been for decades. And if they rule to reverse Roe v. Wade, it will be because they were told to. Uh, it's never about what it's about. Fourth, all of this talk about abortion has highlighted the utter hypocrisy of the left. Apparently, my body, my choice only applies when you're talking about murdering the unborn. When it comes to mandating dangerous experimental injections, it's not your body, it's the government's body. The government owns your body unless we're talking about legalized infanticide. Moreover, I saw, <clears throat> saw this week where several liberal outlets uh, are recommending that if women are not allowed to get an abortion, then they should take a particular veterinary medicine, specifically horse dewormer, which supposedly will create spontaneous abortions. They're actually recommending that. Now, talk about hypocrisy. <laughs> when hundreds of thousands of doctors worldwide recommended taking ivermectin to prevent and even cure COVID, they were mocked and defrocked right and left. So evidently, you cannot take veterinary medicine if your intent is to heal, but if your intent is to murder the unborn, then go right ahead. Hypocrisy. Fifth, it's very possible that this leaked info is just a setup. Uh, maybe the fine, this is the, just, these are just my speculative thoughts, all of this. Maybe the final ruling will go the other way. But either way, they're setting up for one of the fiercest reactions from the public in decades. You think Rodney King was a lightning rod? Just wait. Another possibility uh, is they may need a pretext 
to justify an alleged democratic win in the midterms. In other words, we know that all elections at the national level are rigged, uh, and I've been saying this for 15 years, and, and finally in 2020 they made it so obvious that everybody now gets it. But, uh, but you know, at some point, like in 2020, it becomes obvious. So right now there's a huge popular uprising against the left and against Biden, and if they were to rig this election this fall and say that the Democrats won, nobody would believe it. Um, but if they have a pretext, such as angry Democrats wanting to preserve the right to kill unborn children, well, then it might give, make the cheating a little less obvious. So, you know, obviously time's going to tell how all this uh, plays out, but remember, nothing happens by accident. Uh, this leak was planned, and it, it, we'll just have to wait and see uh, for what end. So, yeah, I just wanted to share that because it's very culturally relevant and thought it would uh, be helpful to kind of get you thinking through some of these issues as well. <clears throat> so let's uh, look to a brighter day, a, a, a greater day that lies ahead, a better day is coming, and that is the millennium. So remember, if, let me see if I can find my uh, end times chart here, just to give us some context. Uh, here we go. So remember, the kingdom is starts when Christ comes back and is inaugurated when he takes the throne. Actually, there's a 75-day little gap there according to Daniel 12, but Essentially, he comes back, as he tells us himself in, in Matthew 24, to take the throne. Um, and then the, that begins the kingdom. But the kingdom, as you see on the screen there, has two aspects. The first thousand years we call the millennium, based on Revelation 20. And uh, it's on this present earth. The kingdom, though, continues after this earth is destroyed by fire and recreated in sinless perfection. That we call the eternal state, or the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what we will get to after we finish our discussion of the millennium. That's our next topic to, to talk about in the next chapter uh, in the book. So uh, right now, as we think about uh, the millennium, you know, there are several characteristics that uh, I think should, should uh, bring us hope and encouragement. Obviously, we talked about the contrasts there between the two, uh, the millennium, is exactly a thousand years. The eternal state is timeless. There is, it's when time shall be no more. There's no night, for example. Uh, old heaven and old earth is where the millennium takes place. The eternal state takes place in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, there's no presence of sin in the eternal state. Everyone will have their glorified body in the eternal state, whereas in the millennium, those who survive the tribulation and enter into the kingdom will, will have their physical bodies and procreate and everyone born will have physical bodies. We will have already been glorified because we receive our glorified body at the rapture before the tribulation. Uh, in the eternal state, the great white throne judgment has already happened. Everyone will be saved. Uh, there's no need for uh, to people to be believing the gospel and be saved because everyone will already be saved. No death, no Jewish temple. Uh, we're going to talk about that this morning. And then, of course, you have the personal presence of the triune God, whereas the millennium focuses on the personal presence of Jesus Christ uh, the long-awaited Messiah. So just to review, we looked at seven geographical characteristics. The first was an increase in territory. We talked about how modern-day Israel does not even come close to the boundaries that are described in Genesis 15 that uh, constitute some 300,000 square miles, as you see in the blue outline there. Uh, but in the millennium, the, the nation of Israel will expand its territory. It will be the capital uh, nation of the world from which Jesus rules with perfect peace and justice. 
We talked about the topographical changes. We talked about how Jerusalem becomes the center of the world's worship. Um, it's, you know, right now you might, th you, people don't think a lot about Israel. I mean, it's in the news a lot, but geographically it's just a small little piece of real estate. So when you think of the globe, uh, you know, you, you think of the United States or you think of Russia or China, these big massive land territories. But in the millennium, Israel takes center stage. Uh, the enlargement of Jerusalem, that we talked about the name of Jerusalem will be changed. Uh, we talked about how Jews will be regathered into the land supernaturally. And the land's desolate condition will be healed so that it has incredible productivity uh, because the curse of sin is minimized during the reign of Christ. Then we looked at some social characteristics, how everybody will know the Lord from the least to the greatest because the new, the new covenant is inaugurated, uh, fully inaugurated during this kingdom age and so no one will need to teach his neighbor everybody will know about the lord over time some will be born who don't know the lord because everyone's born dead in their trespasses and sin ephesians 2 1 they have to be saved so but they'll still know of him they may not believe in him um, natural reproduction fruitful labor that goes back to the desolate conditions being removed universal language will be one language uh, no wars or conflicts, and in general, a peaceful society. We looked at all these verses in previous uh, weeks. And then, of course, true and unprecedented justice. So there won't be any injustice anymore. The guilty will be punished. The innocent will be uh, acquitted. And, uh, and it will be, uh, there will be no miscarriages of justice. So with that, let's take a look at some spiritual characteristics of the millennium. Uh, the first of which is universal worship. Now, I was thinking about this as I was kind of reviewing this this week. You know, right now, it seems like worship is um, compartmentalized. Like people, not, not everybody worships. And of course, everyone who does worship, worships different things. You know, there's all kinds of false religions out there. People worship dead gods, statues, they worship mythical, mystical gods, and so forth. But the fact is, not everybody worships. People think of worship or religion as a segment of society or segment of culture, and some people have no use for it. Well, that's not the way it always was. Remember, when God created the earth, and it was just Adam and Eve, and until the, it was only about 1,600 years until God destroyed the earth by the flood. That's how quickly Satan came in and tried to take over this world. But when God created the earth, it was all, there was, first of all, before sin, there was communion with God. It was Adam and Eve fellowshipping with God, walking and talking with him in the garden, and all day, every day was worship, right? But then even after the fall, <clears throat> it, there was a sense that life in and of itself was about worshiping the creator. Now, obviously, as the depravity of man set in and became more and more, uh, you know, ob obvious uh, over the centuries and millennia, uh, that mo a lot of people are born that have no concept of what it means to worship, and they don't live their lives with a conscious awareness of God the Creator. Uh, but when we come back to the millennium, when we get into the millennium someday, we will be back to an age of universal worship. Everybody that you meet on the street will understand that God the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is sitting on the throne and he's addressing the world from time to time in uh, you know, these televised addresses or however they do it then. Um, and it'll be a, just a, an awareness of, of worship. And, and not only that, as we're going to see, 
but the the, the uh, sacrificial system is restored. The the Jewish uh, festivals and feasts and all of that are restored, and so uh, people will actually be physically going through the actions of of worship that represent. Remember, the, all of those were just a shadow. They're a shadow whether they happen before or after. The substance is God and Christ, uh, but they'll be going through those motions once again. So that's what we read, for example, in Malachi. For the, from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. Obviously, Gentiles there just means non-Jews. <clears throat> we would understand, obviously, how the Jewish nation, when the Messiah has finally come, is engaged in worship, you know, just universally. But Malachi is reminding us that even the non-Jews <clears throat> are going to recognize and understand uh, the Lord. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Isaiah puts it this way. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. Obviously, Egyptians there is just a metonym for all of the enemies of Israel, Egypt being one of the big ones. Zechariah says, yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from every language of the nation shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Now, this is just so exciting to me to think about that day, because that's what was supposed to happen, humanly speaking, you know, in a linear line of thought from man's perspective. When Israel left Egypt, crossed the Jordan, and went into the Promised Land. They were to set up camp, become a light to the pagan nations around them, testify to the oneness of Yahweh, Deuteronomy 6.4, and uh, their, their love for the Lord and His blessing them. Remember the blessing and cursings passages there in Deuteronomy 28 and following, 28 to 30, I think, uh, were to be a light to the Gentiles, and they were to come flocking to Israel saying, Boy, tell us more about your God. Tell us what you have. We want to know more. But that didn't happen because, of course, Israel rebelled time and again. They intermarried. They adopted the pagan ritualistic cultures of the uh, nations around them. And through, though God provided prophets and priests and kings and judges, eventually uh, he had to uh, set Israel aside when they crucified the long-awaited Messiah. And so now we're living in this inter-Advent age called the Church Age that the Bible clearly describes in the New Testament as a mystery, something that was not foreseen in the Old Testament. But someday, the next time, Christ is going to come back and they will cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, instead of crucify him, crucify him. They will crown him King of Kings and Lord of Lords instead of with a crown of thorns. And then we'll see happening what we see happening here. And so... You know, the Bible sort of tells a story from creation to fall to redemption to, you know, to restoration. And that's, that's what's uh, happening. So in the kingdom, it's, you know, globally, there's going to be this universal worship and excitement about the, the God of gods, the creator of the universe. Isaiah goes on, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So Jesus quotes this right before his uh, uh, rejection, or not rejection, but his um, when he was betrayed, right before his betrayal. So on Tuesday of Passion Week, when he's overturning the tables of the money changers and cleansing the temple, 
He says, don't you know my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? He's quoting Isaiah here, and he's looking forward to the time that when they receive their king, indeed, there won't be this different segmented society of Gentiles can only go this far and the rest can go this far. It's going to be everybody being accepted before a holy God. And that's what was so troubling to him is that the, uh, the, Jew, the Jews had so uh, made it mechanical and so drifted in their hearts so far from the Lord. You know, that's what uh, Jesus said. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from, from me. But in the kingdom someday, uh, that won't be the case. So any comments or questions about the universal worship before we move on to number two? I mean, that's, that's going to be a different world, isn't it? I mean, you think how far we are from that today. I mean, not only is there not universal worship, there's, it's almost gotten to the point where there's universal persecution and rejection and blasphemy against God, the God of gods. Uh, but someday that will all change, and uh, we look forward to that day. So, obviously, if you're going to have universal worship, you need a rebuilt temple. And uh, so the, the temple will be rebuilt. It's described most uh, exquisitely in Ezekiel 40 to 48, the last nine chapters uh, of Ezekiel. And uh, it's, it's a magnificent temple. It's unlike any temple before. So if you trace the temple history for Israel, of course, it started with the tabernacle, the mobile tab tabernacle in the wilderness, Eventually, God allowed Solomon to build the temple. That was the first temple. Then that was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. Then he allowed Herod uh, to build the next temple. That was the temple in Jesus' day. That was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. Then there will be a third temple, talking about the physical temple. The Bible talks about temple in a lot of different ways. I have a series I did years ago on, I think it was the five temples counting the temple of your body and the temple of the church. But, um, but anyway, you get, to, uh, you get to the 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple, and then the Antichrist is going to have a temple. So the temple, there will be a rebuilt temple uh, someday, and it could already start before the rapture. We don't know. Uh, it could already be finished before the rapture, but we know there has to be one because the Antichrist rules from it. And at the midpoint of the tribulation, he takes, uh, he sacrifices on the altar and de demands that everybody worship him and declares himself to be God. But that's not the temple that we're talking about here, because that temple too is going to be destroyed at the Battle of Armageddon. And then we will see the glorious final physical temple that Scripture talks about uh, being rebuilt. So Ezekiel says this, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Sanctuary and tabernacle are just synonyms. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be that my people. So we've talked before about how that last phrase there is a key eschatological phrase speaking of the culmination of all things. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It speaks to intimacy, to finality. Obviously, God is our God now. We are his people now. Peter tells us that, uh, um, you know, the sheep of his pasture and so on. But that exact phrase is used time and again in the Old and New Testaments to speak of that finality when the Bible comes full circle and all is made new once again and we have that unimpeded intimacy with God. So right now in this present age, the church age, we have uh, unmitigated access to the Lord. 
but that can be impeded by our own sin, by the flesh. And so if uh, we regard iniquity in our heart, the psalmist tells us the Lord will not hear us. And so 1 John 1, 9 tells us that our fellowship with the Lord can, 1 John, I mean, tells us that our fellowship with the Lord can be uh, hindered. Nothing can change our position. Our position in Christ is set forever. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for your sins, you are born again, born from above, spiritually become a child of God, John 1, 12. Our position is secure, but our fellowship is not always as intimate. The more we drift from the Lord, the more we cater to the flesh and not walk in the Spirit, the, the, the more there's that, that fellowship wanes. And all it takes, of course, is just to agree with God, Lord, I blew it, I, I confess, meaning to say the same thing as, homo legeo, to say the same. So when we confess, then we're restored to that fellowship. Uh, so the intimacy of our relationship with God through His Son Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit is a matter of degree, depending on our walk with the Lord and how faithful we are to Him. But someday, when there will be no more sin, when the curse of sin is completely gone and the world is recreated in sinless perfection, then we will experience true intimacy like we've never experienced before. Haggai says, speaking of this temple, great passage, For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. Who's that? Who's the desire of all nations? Who? Jesus, that's right. By the way, I've been bedridden for the last week, so I haven't been wearing my hearing aids, and then I got up this morning and forgot to put them in. So forgive me, uh, you know, if I have to have you repeat something. And also keep in mind, if you're accustomed to talking about me behind my back because you know I can't hear, this is a good time uh, to do it. Um, yeah, Jesus Christ, they will come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former. You know, it took, I don't know how many years, 100 years or something, and don't quote me on that, but many decades for Herod to build his temple. And, you know, and yet it's not even going to compare to the glory of the temple that is to come. Uh, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, said the Lord of hosts. So the temple will take center stage during the millennial phase of the kingdom, which means that we see the return of the Shekinah glory. Uh, you remember the Old Testament teaching about the Shekinah, which represented the presence of God. Obviously, God is um, omnipresent, but his presence was manifested and made known through the Shekinah uh, glory. And uh, we read about this in 1 Samuel 4, that eventually the Shekinah left the temple, exiting through the eastern gate, Ezekiel chapter 10, when God judged Israel through the Babylonian exile. And uh, they burned the temple, they destroyed it in 586 B.C. And it would be almost 600 years before his visible presence would return, and that was at the coming of Christ. In fact, I don't know if I have this, yeah, I don't think I put this verse on there, but Hebrews uh, chapter 1, <clears throat> this is when the glory first returned in, in, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We read, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days, remember, the present church age is the last days. Okay, The whole church age is the last days. 
And so anytime you read in the New Testament when Paul says, you know, in the last days perilous times will come, that doesn't mean at the very end, just before the rapture, that means in this age, perilous times are going to come. The end times starts with the rapture and, and is everything after that. But the last days is this present age. So in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the world. So here's the key. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. So the glory returned through the presence of Jesus Christ, the God in the flesh, the incarnation. Uh, John tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1, 14. Um, but the glory of God will not return to the temple, specifically, until the millennium. So God warned his people that he would remove the glory of his presence from them if they departed from his will in Deuteronomy, in that blessings and cursings area. And uh, one of the greatest blessings that Christians enjoy is that God has promised he will never draw, withdraw the indwelling Holy Spirit from us, uh, and we are his present temple. But in terms of the physical rebuilt temple, the Shekinah glory will not return until we get to the millennium. Certainly not going to be there during the tribulation. It's going to be just the opposite. The false Christ, which is not the glory of God, will be in there. So again, back to Haggai, <clears throat> I will fill this temple with glory, and the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former. And Ezekiel 48 the last chapter, I think it's the last verse in Ezekiel. Let me just make sure. Yeah, the very last verse in Ezekiel. Uh, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Uh, what a great sort of profound way to end those nine chapters of describing the glorious, beautiful, majestic temple of the Lord. Uh, all the way around it shall be 18,000 cubics, and the name of that city uh, from that day shall be the Lord is there. Jesus emphasized the glory when he talked about his own return, remember, in the Olivet Discourse. This is Wednesday night of Passion Week, so just the day before he's betrayed in the garden, arrested and crucified. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. The reason the glory didn't return to the temple when Christ came the first time, even though he came to the earth, after 600 years since it departed, as Haggai, uh, or I mean Malachi talked about, it, or wherever it was, I mentioned it a second ago, my brain's still a little foggy, and you're saying it seemed, seems pretty typical to me, but no, it's actually foggier than usual, I promise, um, is that Jesus didn't take up residence in the, the temple, right? He couldn't, right? The, it, was, it was sort of occupied, and that's why he was... So angry. Now, had they received him, hypothetically, we know God's plan of the ages is clearly spelled out in Scripture, but hypothetically, had they received the king, he would have been anointed and taken to throne and, and, and so forth and so on. But, but when he comes back, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, he said. So any questions about the return of the Shekinah glory? Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, I think so. The question is, are, is the Shekinah glory and the physical presence of Christ where you can see him face-to-face, -face, two separate things? Yes, yeah, I think they are. I mean, there obviously there's a correlation, but Christ himself is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. Um, 
He's, we know he's recognizable even after the resurrection because he spent 40 days with thousands of people who saw him. Um, and so I think we'll know him, but it seems like, at least in terms of the biblical record of the Shekinah going all the way back, that there are certain times when it, there's a particular manifestation of his glory that encompasses him. So, good question. Judy's so nice. I bet you she asked that question just because she knew I needed to take a drink of water. So thank you. <laughs> You're very kind. Anybody else? Yeah. <clears throat> With that thought in mind, do you think it's only Jesus that we can see because he's a human form? So the Holy Spirit and God himself may be just the glory, but we'll never view them as uh, an image of man. So the question is, uh, is Jesus really the only one that we can see because he put on human form and the Holy Spirit and God the Father will only really see their glory? Um, that's a little more abstract question. I'd have to think about it. I know in the eternal state, it's, it's the Godhead. There's no, temp, there's no throne because it's the Godhead we're worshiping, so obviously we're able to see the Godhead. Um, so God has manifest himself in different ways, but I have to believe that when the Bible comes full circle and there's no more sin, we ought to be able to, to see God, whereas now we, we can't. So I, st I just think Shekinah is its own category. It's, it's sort of a manifestation of the, the glory uh, 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 of God. So, and if I'm not mistaken, glory in Hebrew is, uh, speaks to heaviness. Uh, so it's just it's just an, a sense of profoundness of who God is. Yeah. Was the Shekinah glory what was removed from Adam and Eve when they became naked? Well, I don't know. Do, do you have a verse in mind for that? So the question is, was the Shekinah glory what was removed from Adam and Eve after they sinned? Is there a verse for that? or? Well, so, no, it wasn't that they became naked. They just became aware that they were naked. Okay. So they were always naked because they were innocence, total innocence. But uh, then once they sinned, they became aware of that, and that's why they tried to cover their own sin. Uh, I actually talked about this weekend uh, at the Tulsa conference a little bit about, about that in relation to Freemasonry. But anyway, um, but, uh, no, the, I don't think the Shekinah glory is ever connected to mankind. I think it's always connected to God. Okay, <clears throat> so the next one, then, is the revival of the sacrificial system. We've touched on this a little bit because it always causes people some angst. Uh, I, I've never really understood why it causes angst, but, uh, I mean, I guess I kind of do because we've been taught for almost all of church history that the church is the new Israel They've replaced Israel, and therefore the, the sacrificial system is obsolete. Uh, but that's not the case. And even the passages in Hebrews that talk about that, he's talking about it in the present age. He's trying to demonstrate to the late 60s Christian Jewish community that was suffering intense persecution under uh, Nero and being burned at the stake and things like that. And so consequently, they were contemplating abandoning Christianity and going back to the state religion of Judaism, which was under the control of the Romans at the time, and still a safe haven. And the writer of Hebrews, which may well have been Paul, comes along and tries to convince them that 
Jesus Christ is better than anything Judaism has to offer and that the sacrificial system was simply a shadow of the substance which is Christ. But Hebrews says nothing about the fact that, you know, whether it will or won't be reinstituted in the kingdom. But a whole host of scriptures, chapter after chapter, book after book in the Old Testament, make it unequivocally clear that indeed when the kingdom comes, we will see a restoration of the sacrificial system. I'm going to show you some of those verses in a moment. But remember, the Jews in the Old Testament were not saved, individually redeemed, because they went through the sacrifices. When the you know, high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, you know, made sacrifice for the sins of the people, that didn't ensure that everyone in the nation of Israel went to heaven when they died. Salvation individually has always been by grace through faith. Abraham believed God and was declared righteous. It's always personal faith. It's the only way anyone from Adam forward can ever be made right with a holy God, by personal faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for your sins. So the whole system was a, was a shadow that pointed toward the reality of who Christ is. And it will be the same thing in the kingdom, except instead of looking forward to a coming Messiah, it will be looking at and as I've mentioned before, indeed, the, the sacrificial system being restored will have even greater beauty and profoundness and meaning and significance once we can look right at Christ. You know, back in Old Testament times, it was a little hazy, a little unclear. I mean, they understood, you know, certainly going all the way back to Genesis 22, the Lamb of God and that God provides a lamb and that only God can ultimately save you and that there has to be blood atonement. They understood all that, but it wasn't as clear. Well, now it's clear. You know, John began his gospel uh, by having John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, you know, if, if anybody who's troubled by the fact that the Bible teaches the sacrificial system is going to be restored, it's because they don't understand the purpose of the sacrificial system. So, it will be restored. And so let's look at some passages. Isaiah 56, even them, oh, we mentioned this earlier, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Well, I mean, that seems plain enough. So you have to just completely spiritualize and, you know, allegorize everything the Old Testament says on this matter to not, to, to believe that the sacrificial system won't be inaugurated. In, the, in Isaiah's day, 700 years before Christ, they knew exactly what it meant to have burnt offerings and sacrifices on the altar. So there was no, there was no figurative meaning of that. Um, again, the restoration of the Sabbath and ritual feasts. The same idea, idea. Zechariah put it this way. It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year. This is in the kingdom. To worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. I think what that means is they will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. I don't know any other way to take that. Yeah? So, the, the Jewish festivals will return? Yes, the Jewish festivals will return. What's, and, everything and everything that was involved with that, including in a much broader sense, because now all the Gentiles will... You know, not just a few. There, were, there was Gentile worship, proselyte worship in the Old Testament. But as we said, this time it'll be universal. All the Gentiles will do it. Uh, and then, uh, number. so any questions about that? 
Let me put it back on this slide. So number four and five there, any comments or questions? Yeah. Just a question. Yeah. If Jesus had already saved, you know, by his spilling of his own blood and acting as our priest, had already made that payment. So the question is, will they be actually shedding the blood of animals uh, in the end times and millennium? And if so, what would be the purpose since Jesus shed his blood once for all? Again, the, the blood sacrifice of animals did not save anyone. So only the blood of Christ can save you. So what was the original purpose at all? Then? To, to point... To God as the ultimate redeemer. And the same thing, the same purpose exists in the millennium. And yes, absolutely, look, we just read it. They're burnt offerings and sacrifices. What was the sacrifice? You know, they didn't write a check and put it in the tithe box. They brought animals. So, and, and this is just a sampling, but the scripture goes on and on. And, the, and read Ezekiel 40 to 48. It goes into great detail about the, you know, the, the sacrificial table and all of, all of those uh, pieces of uh, equipment around connected to the temple. So yeah, absolutely. But again, it's not like until the Christ sacrifice, people were saved because of the blood of animals. And now he's replaced that. No, they were never saved by the blood of animals. They're always only saved by faith. That's the only way anybody can be saved. But the whole system represented as a shadow the ultimate reality. And once again, that same shadow is going to point to the reality again, but just looking back. We do it all the time. We have emblems and symbols and things that, you know, represent a substance, a reality. And it's going to be even more meaningful once you've, you know, seen the, the, the reality. And so, um, you know, I, I can just imagine being, taking part in these sacrifices and knowing my Savior, in a similar way, it's kind of like the Lord's Supper, right? The Lord's Supper doesn't save you. Some religions teach it does. Roman Catholicism believes in, you know, transubstantiation, that you're literally, only way to go to heaven is by one of the sacraments, namely the uh, communion, they call it. Um, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches it's a symbol. So, you know, you could easily ask the same question. Why do we take the cup and drink the bread when his blood has already been shed for us and saved us well because we're remembering it and that's exactly what happened in the sacrificial system and it's exactly what will happen in the temp in the kingdom yeah will those of us in our glorified bodies participate will those of us in our glorified bodies participate in these sacrificial offerings and things. That's a good question. You know, we seem, the church anyway, seems to have special duties and responsibilities and help governing and reigning and ruling. So, um, and, but the Old Testament saints that are resurrected at the second coming, they're certainly going to be uh, participating in the normal routine aspects of life. Jesus said in Matthew 8 uh, that people will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the banqueting table so uh, I'm not sure how that's going to work because you know they won't have a digestive system and they won't have an appendix so I'm already one step ahead uh, 
but uh, they won't have a spleen or anything, but somehow they'll be able to do those things. So I would assume yes, because of the, the number one there, the universal nature, it doesn't seem to exclude anybody, but it's a, it certainly creates a pragmatic question about physicality versus the glorified body. Yeah. So those who've kind of returned to the Hebrew roots, are you talking about believers like Messianic Jews? People that, no. Like are they, they believe the gospel? Right. I'm getting conflicting. All right, you guys huddle up and decide. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't. Yeah, there are Jews unbelieving. Yeah, there is a whole, you know, group out there that is not believers that still thinks that the Jewish system is in vogue today, but it's not. It's not operational today. The Bible makes that clear. Israel has been set aside. Romans nine through eleven, not permanently, but temporarily. So we don't, you know. Now we're Jew and Gentile in one body. It's the body of Christ. I'm going to talk about that in the worship uh, hour. Uh, and so that's not correct to do that. But as far as Messianic Jews who believe the gospel and, are the, and then are doing some of their cultural things, I think a lot of that is just the recognition that someday it's going to return to that. Jesus himself told the Samaritan woman, uh, salvation is of the Jews, or the woman at the well, anyway, told a woman, that salvation is of the Jews. And so we know that Israel is center stage. It's the apple of God's eye and so forth. So I think in some cases they're just priming the pump. So, but we wouldn't be obligated to do that today. It's just once again, like we were talking about with Mike, just a, a great way to picture and foreshadow and have a foretaste of what's, what's to come. And we've done that. I think Plum Creek has had a... a uh, Seder, or what did you call it? Seder Supper. Yeah, Seder Supper. I think that's wonderful. Anything we can do to highlight and remember what's to come, you know, both remember and, and, and look forward is great. So, All right, well, great job. Um, we're out of time for this morning hour, so we're going to stop here. Those of you here, we'll take about a 15-minute break, uh, stretch your legs, get some refreshments. Those of you live streaming, remember we don't live stream the entire service. We only live stream the message. So the t start time is a little approximate, but generally speaking, about 30 minutes from now, give or take five or 10 minutes, uh, we should be back on with the live stream. Thank you, guys.